Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. You're listening to episode 31. What happened to Elizabeth Short, the so-called Black Dahlia? On January 15, 1947, a young mother is taking her little girl for a walk. The mom saw what she thought was a mannequin. The body of a young woman is discovered on January 15, 1947 in the uh, vacant lot in a suburb, Lamert Park, which is a few miles out of the downtown area. Who was she? That part of the case would be solved quickly. The woman's name was Elizabeth Short. But the circumstances of her murder would become the most highly publicized and investigated case in the history of Los Angeles. Joan Renner is a social historian. We never really know who she is. It's always about what was done to her. I think everyone's heard of it. It's called America's Murder uh, by a lot of people. And you can go pretty much anywhere on the planet and say Black Dahlia and people have some idea about what you're talking about. But the name Elizabeth Short would be overshadowed by her nickname, the infamous Black Dahlia. And over the years, there have been many myths about the case. A fabrication of details that didn't have anything to do with her real life and ultimately overshadowed the real person, Elizabeth Short, a young woman who had been horribly brutalized and murdered by a sadistic killer. Given me so much to work with beyond just what happened. And that's what these historical cases are so great because it's not yeah. just about the crime, but what was going on during the times and what yeah. it was like for women and giving back some of her humanity. That's what she deserves. She's not She's not just this thing that becomes a, a Halloween costume for people with no conscience or taste. She's not the, uh, like the, you know, the tragic Hollywood story come to life. The, the real Hollywood story we'll talk about another time is Peg Entwistle committed suicide by jumping off the Hollywood sign. There's your Hollywood story, but that's not Beth Short. Beth Short was um, a nice, confused girl from Medford, Massachusetts, and she deserved a longer life than 22 years. In this episode, we'll go over those myths that still persist to this day. One of the myths that needs to be exploded, she was a young woman. She was sexually active. She was not frigid. She had a medical condition that sometimes made her unavailable for sex. Now, how guys interpreted that at the time is on them. Whether I mean, the fact that it's even relevant is, is yeah. like, I'm still kind of struggling with that. Like, why out of all the things, is that the focus? Yeah. Well, because she, I think because she was attractive, because, and that that's the whole lurid part of the story. You'll also hear the unbelievable story of a man who believes that his father murdered the Black Dahlia. Comes down to the violence and the hatred of women. Absolutely. I mean, this whole story is totally misogyny. Elizabeth Smart was born on July 29, 1924. She was the third of five daughters, and she grew up in Medford, Massachusetts. 
she was one of several daughters and their father left them. He faked his own death. Uh, a lot of guys did that when they didn't want to pay child support or have, you know, they wanted to leave the family they just booked and left mom to, um, to take care of things. And that was Phoebe Short. Elizabeth's father hadn't always been a deadbeat dad. He'd at one time been a thriving business owner. In the 1920s and into the 30s, miniature golf was a huge thing. People loved miniature golf. And so Cleo had a miniature golf course. He, he did this as a business. And then, of course, when it was hot, he did really well. But then it tanked. The stock market crash of 1929 would lead to his staged suicide. His car was found on the Charleston Bridge. Local authorities and the family believed that he had taken his own life by jumping into the Charles River, even though his body had never been found. Elizabeth's mom worked as a bookkeeper to provide for the family. So I think with the, with the, other, with the other sisters and the mom, somehow they managed to make ends meet in Medford. Elizabeth had severe bronchitis and asthma. By the age of 15, she began relocating to Florida to spend winters with relatives, and she would do this for the next several years. Like a lot of people at that time, she had upper respiratory problems, and her mom used to send her to Florida during the winter when it was really hard to, you know, to live with those kinds of issues. And so she was used to really being on her own to some degree, even even pretty young. She worked in a delicatessen in Florida. She dropped out of school in her sophomore year. In the 1940s, in the United States, less than 50% of American kids actually graduated from high school. She knew how to get a job, so they, they, did, they did manage, and, but she was always really on her own. In 1942, Elizabeth found out that her father hadn't jumped off a bridge after all, but was alive and well in sunny California. Elizabeth hadn't seen her father since she was six years old, and when she turned 18, she decided to pack up and go be with her long-lost father. Like a lot of um, girls who grow up without a father, she was seeking that father figure. And finally, when she actually was able to make contact with her, with her father, he was living out in California and he was living in the Santa Barbara area. And she came out because she really wanted a dad. She really wanted to connect with that dad. As Elizabeth traveled the 3,000 miles across the country from Massachusetts to Santa Barbara, it's not hard to imagine that little girl who's now 18 fantasizing this epic reunion. Finally, she'd get to connect with her father. She was desperate for his approval and a father's unconditional love. But it was pretty clear from the beginning that her father wasn't really interested in having this epic reunion where she was the apple of his eye. The relationship from the beginning felt transactional. He sort of saw her as a housekeeper and she was a young woman. She wanted to go out. She wanted to make friends. And it didn't take long for the friction to start. And that pretty much severed their relationship. They just couldn't. He, he was, like I said, not a really nice guy. Um, not the dad that she had hoped for by any means. Elizabeth Short, rejected by her father, moves out from his home. But she's able to land a job at Camp Cook, a base in Santa Barbara. And she starts working there in January of 1943. Here she experiences some success. She wins a beauty contest and she meets new friends. The post exchange, the PX at Camp Cook, she's voted Camp Cutie, you know, and all. She's very, you know, very pretty. She's still a teenager at that time. Elizabeth has been working at Camp Cook for seven months. 
and life is good. She's made friends. She's actually having fun one night on the town with some older friends when she gets in trouble. Famous photograph of her as a mugshot from Santa Barbara. And the reason that happened was she was out with some people from the camp and they were older than she and they were out at a restaurant bar in the area and they were drinking. She didn't really drink. She, you know, she just didn't really drink, but she was there and she's underage and she's arrested for being underage, you know, there. She's taken to jail, gets the mugshot, and there's a nice matron there. And she she notices that that Beth seems she's kind of naive, you know, in a way. And and she said, you know, honey, you really ought to, you know, you really ought to go back to Medford. You ought to go home. And at that time, she noticed that Beth had a small butterfly tattooed on her. Elizabeth went back to Massachusetts, but not for long. Soon she was heading back to Florida, where she hoped her dreams would come true. She wanted to meet the man of her dreams and ultimately to have a family of her own. And if you look at the home front stuff during the war and you look at cosmetics ads, women's columns, everything is geared toward this is what's going to happen after the war. You know, you put down that Rosie the Riveter tool, you go back to the kitchen. It's all this stuff. And that was part of the cage. I think, that caged women in that generation, and but also part of the dream. Elizabeth's dream to meet a man in uniform and have a family meant that she was going on a lot of dates. To one guy that she wrote to, when he writes back, he said, you, you know, you mentioned in your letter, Beth, you mentioned marriage. And he said, in my experience, it can be confused with, basically, it can be confused with love or lust, you know, and, and it's not it's with attraction. It's not love. It's not marriage, you know, and he's he's trying to tell her I'm not interested in marriage. And I think she bumped into that a lot, I think, because that's what she so desperately wanted. I don't think she knew how to um, she kind of wore her heart on her sleeve in that way. I think when she wrote to guys, she often was looking for that deeper relationship. In fact, Elizabeth would have to kiss a lot of frogs before she would find her Prince Charming in 1944. In Florida, she had fallen in love after meeting Major Matthew Gordon, a decorated Army Air Force pilot. But dating a military man during World War II meant that he could be deployed at any time. And he was. In fact, he got in a plane crash in India. He would survive. Elizabeth would tell friends that Major Gordon had written a proposal of marriage from his hospital bed and she'd accepted. But Elizabeth's joy was short-lived. On August 10, 1945, just a week before the end of World War II, Major Matthew Gordon would die in a second plane crash. They get engaged. She is clearly in love. I mean, really in love. And as a pilot, this is at the end of the war, right after the, you know, right after the war's been over. He's killed in a crash, in a plane accident, I think, over the China Sea. And that, I think... In addition to any other emotional issues she may have had, that really damaged her. From that moment on, there's no evidence that she ever held down another job. She was always seeking, I think, a replacement for, um, for her dead fiancé. By July of 1946, Elizabeth moved to Los Angeles to live. During the war, on the home front, as a woman, your duty was to always look your best. 
I mean, whether you were Rosie the Riveter or a housewife, put on that lipstick, do something with your hair. And it was considered patriotic to support the soldiers, you know, in any way possible. And 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 Beth, like, like a lot of girls, really liked a guy in uniform. So, and again, Los Angeles was a hub for that. You could find lots of guys in the service in L.A. At the time, Los Angeles was still considered an up-and-coming movie town with a tolerant atmosphere, and you couldn't beat the weather or the backdrop of the ocean, desert, and mountains. Near L.A. was Orange County. Back then, it was rural farmland where groves of orange trees grew on 67,000 acres. In the late 1940s, Los Angeles was booming. Filmmakers had moved to the area for the year-round sunshine, and they ended up staying as a way to avoid Thomas Edison's patent restrictions on the motion picture camera. And it wasn't just a place for filmmakers and actors. Many people came to Los Angeles to escape their pasts and begin again. Los Angeles in the 1940s was like a living, breathing entity with its own personality, a character in its own evolving story. Los Angeles has always, it's always been, right, almost from the beginning, a place where people either ran to, to sort of start fresh, or they were running from something somewhere else. And so, you know, you get this mix of people, and it's just this, just this stew of people, and some of it's good and some of it's bad, because L.A. is really kind of a, uh, a character, in this. A post-war population boom meant L.A. was ripe for progress and development. The area was rich in cheap labor and opportunity. People from all over were drawn to the city by the busloads. It was also a time when newspapers controlled mass media. So you have a population of people on the move, and they don't have fixed addresses because of the explosive growth. And also, after the war, Los Angeles became known as a city that welcomed newcomers, which attracted European artists and intellectuals who had fled Nazi Germany during the war. And you had all these people, they're basically transients because uh, there was a housing shortage. So unless you had a fixed address, you had to move every five days. If you were in a hotel or, you know, motel, whatever, five days, you're done. Because they're trying to rotate people in and out. And so it was, um, I think it was fine for people in their 20s, which is what most of the population was at that time. But it was also very unsettling. People weren't connected in the same way that they had been, that they same the same way that they had been in their hometowns. World War II had officially ended in 1945 with Japan's surrender. Men were still being mustered out of the service. And L.A. was a hub for that. A lot of guys left, you know, and came back to California, came back to Los Angeles. And the population just exploded as a result because a lot of guys thought, you know, Iowa's okay, but I kind of like the weather in, in, in Los Angeles. I think I might stay. And we got a lot of really great people, but we also got a lot of really disturbed people and people who had not, who'd experienced stuff in the war that no one should ever have to go through. And they came back damaged. And so there was um, quite an uptick in crime in that post-war era. The perfect conditions for a serial killer to hunt young, vulnerable women, there had been a slew of still unsolved murders back in the 1940s. So when Elizabeth moved back to California, there was still a lot of flux in her life. She was still recovering from her fiancé's death, but she'd met a man named Joseph Fickling, and that's what brought her back to Los Angeles. Ultimately, that relationship wouldn't pan out. He ended up moving to North Carolina, and Elizabeth stayed behind. 
on her own, she ended up living in a cramped apartment with eight other women in Hollywood off of Sunset Boulevard. Elizabeth doesn't have a job, and every day feels like a hard scrabble existence. Nobody really had any money. These girls had bunk beds in what was like a one-bedroom apartment. I think there was basically a bathroom down the hall kind of thing. And so they're in bunk beds, and it was a dollar a night, you know, for her to stay. She still hasn't lost hope that she will meet her Prince Charming and live happily ever after. And so she continues to go on a lot of dates. When you ask about her dreams, what were her dreams? This goes right to the heart of another myth. And this starts off almost every paragraph I ever read about her. They say, wannabe actress, Elizabeth Short. No, no and no. There is absolutely no evidence that she ever went on a cattle call, that she had interest in acting. Did she know women who did? Yeah. A lot of them worked either on the periphery of the industry or they wanted to be actresses themselves. When she lived behind the Florentine Gardens, um, and this guy that, that managed or owned the Florentine Gardens, Mark Hansen, he always had attractive women living back there. And Beth didn't last that long because most of them were wanted wannabe actresses. They were pretty loose, some of them, not all of them by any stretch, but some of them. And she wasn't like that. So the, the whole actress thing, she never went on a cattle call. There's absolutely no film of her anywhere, no matter what anyone says. There's no film of her anywhere. What she really wanted, and this may sound, you know, boring as hell to people who want that myth. What she really wanted, which is quite clear from everything that she did, was she wanted to marry a guy in the military and live happily ever after. That's what she wanted. And this could also account for the prostitute rumor. They would go out on dates and a guy would buy them a meal or something and probably hoping that there would be more at the end of it. Sometimes there was and sometimes there wasn't. But a gentleman understood that it was a crapshoot. And and that and that's how she made it by. She made it by also occasionally borrowing a couple bucks from a friend, you know, that kind of thing. So she barely, barely made ends meet. It's unclear as to why, but in December of 1946, Elizabeth decides to travel to San Diego. Here, she couch surfs for about a month. She isn't working, but hangs out at a coffee shop where she writes letters. At some point, she meets a 25-year-old man named Robert Manley. Now, Manley is a married salesman, and apparently he offered to give her a ride multiple times, but Elizabeth says no. But eventually his persistence pays off, and as she's walking to the San Diego bus stop, he asks her if she wants a ride, and she finally says yes. Robert Red Manley. Red Manley's a married guy. He's got a wife and a pretty new baby at home. And he travels around Southern California. I don't know what he sells. He's a salesman. He, in San Diego, he notices Beth on a street corner. Um, she might be waiting for a bus. More likely, she's actually waiting for a ride for somebody to stop and offer. For an opportunity. Yeah. And that's what happens here. He stops and he said, can I give you a ride? And she's sort of like, well, why would I want to get in the car for you? And he's, well, you know, I don't know. I can give you a ride. And she's like, okay. Then she just gets in the car and they start a conversation. Um, they actually go out on a couple of dates. They go dancing. They have dinner. I don't know. I don't think she knew he was married. I doubt that he told her that he was, but they correspond for those couple of weeks, three weeks, whatever it was. She says, uh, she finally writes to him and says, I want to come. I need to come back to L.A. You know, I, I need to leave San Diego. So he picks her up 
and it's January 7, 1947. We'll be back after a quick break. The drive from San Diego to L.A. is roughly three hours, and on their way, they decide to have a little fun. And for the next couple of days, they go out to dinner and dance the night away. They would book a motel for a couple of days, and it becomes obvious to Manley that Elizabeth isn't interested in having an intimate relationship. Red Manley had concocted this love test. This is something that only a young, dumb, married guy can concoct. If Elizabeth Short sleeps with him, then his, he's not meant to be with his wife. If this actually happens, then his marriage is probably over. He's not meant. But if nothing happens... He's meant to be with his wife and he's got to go back and resume the relationship. So the love test works out in favor of his wife anyway. And so, so then they, you know, the next day they're headed back up in the, in the car and they go, they get to LA and he says, you know, cause he's been out of touch now with his wife for a few days. He hasn't called or anything. She's got to be worried and he's feeling a little antsy about it. He needs to be back in touch. So um, he said, you know, where do you need to go? And she said, well, I need to go to the bus depot to store my luggage. This was very common to do when you were transient. Um, they had lockers and you could store a suitcase or two in, in a locker. You know, this is really kind of a bad neighborhood. I mean, definitely it's a bad neighborhood now, but it wasn't that great then either. And he said, you know, I can't just drop you off here. <laughs> and she said, no, 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 I'll be fine. I'll be fine. By this time, I think she's just trying to scrape them off her shoes. You know, she's like, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And he's no, 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 no. You know, a gentleman doesn't leave her, you know, so he goes in with her. They retrieve her, you know, her, her bag or Parker bags there and come back out. And he said, okay, you know, where can I take you? And she said, the Biltmore Hotel, my sister is going to meet me there. The Biltmore Hotel is in walking distance of the bus depot. Manly insists on driving her there. Inside, Elizabeth tells him that she'll be okay, but he still doesn't leave. They sit down in the lobby together and make small talk. And finally, he realizes, despite his nagging feeling, that he just doesn't want to leave her. He's got to get back on the road to his wife. After Manley leaves Elizabeth at the Biltmore, she's seen making a phone call in the lobby. It's unclear who she called. After that, she leaves the hotel. She goes out, she's facing Pershing Square. She goes out, she turns right and she heads down uh, a couple blocks and she probably stops in at a place called the Crown Grill. The Crown Grill is just a few blocks from the Biltmore. It was a place that was infamous for leading a double life. Dark, dingy. During the day, it was where you could, you know, take your mistress and not worry about being seen. In the evenings, it was also a gay bar, which at the time um, homosexuality was illegal. So it had this weird double life, but she probably went there. There's, it's not certain. Some people remember seeing her, but they don't know because she, she went there often enough that they could have confused the, the day or night. Elizabeth was seen by customers at the Crown Grill that day, but it's unclear why she's there or if she has a place to stay for the night. Remember, all of her belongings she had stored at the bus depot nearby. So she probably in her head, she's thinking, I just need to get back to Hollywood. I know people there. I can find a place to stay for the, for the night. So whether or not she stops at the grill, um, she just vanishes into history. Elizabeth Short was just 22 years old. A week later, on January 15th, a woman is taking a walk around the Los Angeles neighborhood of Lamert Park, she has her three-year-old daughter with her. 
Back then, the neighborhood was mostly undeveloped. Betty Bursinger and her little girl were walking. They were going to go do some errands. There were houses there that had been built prior to the war, but then all the material, they stopped building houses and stuff for the duration because they needed all this you know, material to, for the war effort. So there were still vacant lots along one side, but she was walking from her house with her little girl. It was around 10 a.m. when the mother saw something near the road. From the distance, it looked like a mannequin. But as she walked up closer, she could see that it was something horrific, something she would never be able to forget. The body of a young woman is discovered on January 15, 1947, in the uh, vacant lot in a suburb, Lamert Park, which is a few miles out of the downtown area, about exactly a foot in off the sidewalk and 50 feet north of a hydrant because the sidewalks were in, that infrastructure was in, but the houses weren't built yet. So she's walking, she sees something. She sees a white shape in, in the weeds off the sidewalk and she thinks, it's a mannequin. Um, and she gets a little closer. She thinks, oh, maybe it's a drunk woman. But then she notices that the body is nude and she has been cut in half. The body of the woman was ghastly white. All of the blood had been drained from the corpse. Upon realizing what she was looking at, the mother picks up her child and races away from the scene. She ran to a neighbor and frantically called the police. Terrified and overwhelmed, she phones it into the police but forgets to identify herself. She's not she's not known for another day or so after that. So the police roll on it. They get out there, and there's a lot of a lot of people take credit for being the first to be on the scene. Uh, some reporters do. Some um, it's hard to say, and after all this all this time, it doesn't really matter what they do find and what everyone sees that day. Who's there? Is this young woman clearly posed? Her arms are basically above her head. Her, her legs are spread open, um, facing south. Her head is, and her torso is, is you know, in, facing north. And if you go on Norton and look from that spot, kind of ironic, uh, it, you can see the Hollywood sign from there. You can see the Hollywood sign. And I think that's where another way people attach this murder to the myth that maybe she was, you know, was a Hollywood thing. In less than an hour, the body would be identified as that of Elizabeth Short. She's, she's naked. There's nothing, no ID, no nothing. So they have to ID her. They, they roll her prints. And um, normally what they do is send them back on a plane to Washington, D.C. A lot of people did war work. For instance, she would have been printed when she worked at Camp Cook, when she was working in the PX there. And, but there was such a fierce storm in the east that planes were grounded. So the police, LAPD, whose case it was, talks with uh, someone at the Herald newspaper and the, guy, and the city editor at the Herald says, hey, you know, we've got this sound photo machine and we're thinking maybe we can use it to send her. It's sort of like an early fax. It's like a fax prototype. Maybe we can send her fingerprints on this machine to D.C. The FBI can look at them. Ta-da. And it works. It works. They actually send her prints to the FBI there. They go through the prints. Sure enough, they find Elizabeth Short. They find that famous mugshot, you know, from when she was there. And so now they've got her ID'd. According to retired LAPD detective Steve Hodell, who you'll hear from throughout this episode, decades later, when he was looking at the crime scene photos, he would say that it was the worst thing he'd seen in his three decades of being a homicide detective. A warning. 
The details of how Elizabeth Short's body was left mutilated and posed is difficult to hear, so please take care. The body is cut in two, surgically bisected, carefully. It's been washed clean. There's no blood at the scene. The upper portion, the upper torso is posed near the sidewalk with the hands above the head in like a surrender position. The lower part is juxtaposed just, just inches away towards the sidewalk. Blunt force trauma to the head. Uh, the mouth has been surgically cut into a large, what appears to be a large smile. And that's a big myth too, that they say it's a jagged, they like it to the um, a Glasgow smile, which is cut ear to ear, but actually it was carefully rounded with, with a scalpel. But it was, it was it's, they sutured it shut at the corner, and that's the photo that people look at and think. Anyway, uh, trauma, the right breast has been completely excised and removed. There's a tic-tac-toe, an unusual tic-tac-toe mark on the right hip. The left hip, large section of flesh has been removed. It was inserted in their private parts. Uh, eventually, they would discover this. Ligature ties, ligature marks to the wrists, the feet, the neck. Not that she was strangled to death, but there were ligature marks, so she was clearly tied. Doctors that uh, exam did the examination estimated that she was tortured for about maybe four hours, but the procedure, this is a procedure that's called a hemicorporectomy. And that's the only way you can cut, you have to go between the second and third lumbar vertebrae. And it's the only way you can divide the body without sawing through bone. So she this wasn't was, alive during this, was she? Par partially, yes. Yeah. The medical examiners would determine that Elizabeth had been dead for around 10 hours which meant she was likely murdered around late evening of January 14th or the early morning hours of the 15th. Elizabeth's cause of death was determined to have been caused by hemorrhaging due to multiple blows to the head and face. It was possible she could have been sexually assaulted, but samples taken from a rape kit didn't show the presence of sperm. But remember, it was clear that the killer had washed her body. And that little tattoo that Elizabeth had on her body of a butterfly, the medical examiner would find the butterfly, and had been placed inside of her. One of the holdback things originally was that tattoo. Whoever killed her cut out the tattoo. That's the thing that freaks me out the most is where was she and what happened to her? And I can't, I can't even begin to imagine her fear. It was clear that she was beaten. It's not clear it, whether or not she was sexually assaulted. I don't think there was uh, sufficient evidence. So she died on January 15th. So, oh she, so no one saw her between the, the 9th and the 15th. Investigators would find a heel print at the crime scene, along with tire tracks on the ground, and a cement bag filled with watery blood, which was found close by and presumably had been left by the killer. The FBI would provide Elizabeth's mugshot to the police. Remember, it had been taken four years earlier when she'd been arrested for underage drinking when she worked at Camp Cook in Santa Barbara. Detectives were anxious to find the actual crime scene. It was obvious to them that Elizabeth's body had been posed and that she'd been murdered and mutilated somewhere else, a place where the killer could take his time, wash her body after he'd performed his ghastly crimes. Investigators also tried to piece together Elizabeth's movements from January 9th, after Manley had dropped her off at the Biltmore, through the 15th, where she was found by that young mother, at 10 a.m. And then their homicide ledger where they where they'll write, you know, some details of the case and who was assigned to it. In this particular case, it says everyone, <laughs> everyone was assigned to it. They literally door knocked, I don't know, 3000 doors. They were trying to find a crime scene, which they never did locate. 
They searched storm drains, empty and abandoned sites in Los Angeles. Local waterways like the Los Angeles River were picked over, looking for anything related to the crime. On January 16th, a $10,000 reward was offered for information leading to the arrest of the killer. From the very beginning, Elizabeth Short's horrific murder became a media sensation, a frenzy, where every detail in the case was front-page news. It wasn't long before Elizabeth Short was becoming infamous. Her nickname had become the Black Dahlia. A nod to a popular murder mystery movie at the time called The Blue Dahlia, and also because Elizabeth had been last seen wearing a tight skirt and a sheer blouse, and her beautiful raven black hair. Elizabeth was described in an article at the time as an adventuress who prowled Hollywood Boulevard. This narrative of Elizabeth as the temptress, and that she was a wannabe starlet, had become a part of the story. So had her series of unsuccessful relationships that would be the latest headline news. How she'd been unlucky in love possibly because she was a horrible tease who led men on, that she had a medical condition that had caused her to be frigid. Why would people care? So there are scenarios, well, you know, she had this genital problem and couldn't have sex, and that enraged the man, and that's why he killed her. So, and the, the whole sex attitude, you know, the whole sex thing involved in the crime makes sense because there was so much rage. I mean, I've had 300 murder investigations. I've never seen... The kind of trauma that I saw at this crime scene. There were rumors that she had been a lesbian, a prostitute. So many rabbit holes about her personal life were explored in gory detail. This story that went around for the longest time, and I think its genesis is in a book called Severed by John Gilmore. He wrote this book, I think, in the 70s. And in it, he said that Elizabeth Short had infantile genitalia and that she was not able to have regular intercourse with a man. What she did have wasn't any kind of malformed genitalia. What she did have, she had trouble with her Bartholin's gland. Okay, the Bartholin's gland is what provides lubrication for a woman for intercourse. And if it gets infected, it can swell up like an ostrich egg. Okay, very uncomfortable. And at the time, because they're, they were just then, you know, getting to discover antibiotics. That wasn't a treatment. The treatment for her was to, and this is cringeworthy, was to have it lanced like you would a boil. It made her very uncomfortable, undoubtedly. And again, because of the time, she would not have felt, um, and she was kind of a closed off person anyway, she wouldn't have felt comfortable telling anyone. I don't think she ever told any of her girlfriends. She wasn't really that close to them either. She was always a little standoffish. A woman who'd known Elizabeth would be quoted as telling the police that she, quote, liked to get guys worked up over her, but she'd leave them hanging dry. An example of such a date was with a man who was kept anonymous for decades. In his FBI file, he was known as Sergeant Doe. And this relationship is a good example of how her life would ultimately be scrutinized, especially as it related to her sexual history. Again, that might be the sexist part of it you know, or the fact that um, she had intercourse but didn't seem to enjoy it, that could be part of it. And so it's that whole, it, you know, it's all in the context of its time. You can't make sense of it. It's a different, it's a different time. So that's a part of her story that because she's frigid, she somehow yeah. deserved, like that she frustrated the person. And so therefore, I mean, I'm just trying to figure out like, what, what does that mean? in the context of, of even back then. Oh. Yeah. 
Well, Carolyn, I think you're right. I think what, what part of it was is that for a long time, they that's part of the myth is that she wasn't, there's two sides. One was that she wasn't sexually active. She's a young woman, of course she is. And they had intercourse, according to Sergeant Doe, a couple times over the course of the night. And then later when he was questioned uh, about her, about his relationship with her, he said, you know, um, she didn't seem to enjoy it that much. Now, this is really sexist. This is this will give you a good hint about what the times were like. Sergeant Doe thought, eh, maybe she's a lesbian. And I was like, oh, it couldn't have been me. No, no. Sergeant Doe, God forbid, you, you know, you're you're not that great in bed. Early in the murder investigation, Manley turned himself into police for questioning. He was the last person to be seen with Elizabeth before she seemingly vanished without a trace. But after interviewing him, it was clear to law enforcement that he had nothing to do with her murder and he'd been back in San Diego at the time of her death. He also passed multiple lie detector tests. All the media attention brought a lot of scrutiny to the case. The investigation and the details surrounding Elizabeth's murder and personal life were front page news for 35 days after her body was discovered. There was a lot of pressure on law enforcement to solve her murder. And remember, at the beginning of the show, I'd mentioned there were a lot of unsolved homicides of young women in L.A. It wasn't a good look for the LAPD. They're two very dedicated, very uh, accomplished homicide investigators. And so they're looking at this case. They want to solve it. And like you said, with the other prior homicides of women, there's a lot of pressure to solve, you know, is this going to be another unsolved homicide of a woman in Los Angeles? We'll be back after a quick break. On January 25th, Elizabeth's purse and one of her shoes was found in a dumpster. Both were identified by Robert Manley as belonging to her. But the find didn't get investigators any closer to the identity of the killer. Just another fresh headline hot off the press, which read, quote, New clues in Dahlia killing, her purse and shoes found in dumpster. The pressure continued to mount. More than 700 investigators from LAPD, the sheriff's office, and the California State Patrol worked the case during the initial investigation. Despite the body being found, and now the purse and the shoes, there was just no physical evidence tying anyone to the case. And the reward that was offered brought people in with tips, but they didn't go anywhere. Detectives had to take a hard look at the circumstantial clues that they did have. Why was the body mutilated and posed? Obviously a huge question, and based on the bisection of the body and other surgical-looking cuts, the thinking was that a doctor or someone with surgical knowledge could be the killer. Also, sexual predators and deviants. A person of interest came to the surface, someone who definitely fit the bill of a deviant, and a doctor whose name was George Hill Hodel Jr., so George Hodel, yeah, he was definitely a suspect. He had some friends somewhere. He was, um, I think he did a lot of testing for um, venereal diseases and stuff. He knew where, he knew some dirty secrets, I'm sure, here and there. Life is definitely strange sometimes. And in this case, even stranger. An ironic twist in the Black Dahlia investigation, a man named Steve Hodel would come to believe that his father, murdered Elizabeth Short. My name is Steve Hodell. I'm retired LAPD. Uh, I was with LAPD for 24 years. 300 murder investigations during my career. 
had a high solve rate, about 80, 85%. Uh, it wasn't just me. It was my partners, too, working Hollywood division. Steve Hodell is a retired LAPD detective who believes that his father, George Hill Hodell Jr., not only murdered Elizabeth Short, but that he's also a serial killer. He would go on to publish a book about his findings, which disrupted previous theories of this notorious case. When my book came out and all of this, there was a lot of publicity, you know, and I did the Dateline and 48 Hours and all that. You know, because this is LA's most famous unsolved, uh, there's a lot of, so much myth. And a lot of people have, don't mess with my myth. You know, they have other theories that they believed. So consequently for them to believe their other theory, they have, and unfortunately a book was published by a woman named Janice Knowlton. And my daddy is the Black Dahlia killer. And that came out some years before and it was, of course, proven ridiculous, false. But um, so then my book comes out, and so people makes it easy for people to say, "Oh, here's another daddy dearest." You know, no, her daddy didn't do it. My daddy, you know, that kind of. Thing. And, and it's you know you have to admit the story is almost like, what? How can this be true? You know, it grows up to become an LA cop and a homicide, respected homicide detective, and you know, it's so, it's so beyond bizarre. And there's so many tentacles to it. Over the decades, countless suspects have emerged. But George Hodel has been at the top of the list. And Steve Hodel makes a compelling case that his father is not only the killer of the Black Dahlia, but of so many other women. The other big thing is that he was a serial killer. There were lone woman murders, about nine that I discovered in L.A. at the same time that he had actually committed. There's this thing that happens when you look at people's lives or their homes or their material possessions and you wonder, wow, what would it be like to be them? And maybe you fantasize about the great lives that you imagine these people have to be living based on how beautiful they are or how wealthy they are or how wonderful their homes are, which is all to say that George Hodel's home was impressive. It was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright's son, Lloyd Wright, and became known as the Soden House. The house is mysterious looking, and honestly, when you know the history, it looks evil. The front facade looks like these huge jaws and gives the appearance of being like a fortress. The inside has been described as like going into a cave where you're completely cut off from the outside world. The Soden House was a compound, and it had secret rooms and this beautiful central courtyard that was filled with botanical beauties. Outside, exotic plants and flowers flourished in the California sunshine. This is where Steve grew up, and he believes it's where Elizabeth Short was taken and ultimately murdered. When I saw that photo of your dad's home with the architecture, yeah. I mean, it was just like, oh my gosh. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it just what is that? Like, what that looks, what is that architecture? Yeah, it's it's Mayan. It's actually uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, the famous architect Frank Lloyd Wright, his son Lloyd Wright built that home in 1926. It's most commonly known as a Soden house. This has been used in a lot of different movies. And it's very, it's most unusual. It's like a Hollywood set in the middle of Los Angeles, you know, in Hollywood. And we were there, my dad bought it in 45, 44, actually. And then we were there for 45 to 50 when he fled and left the country. And that actually is murder scene, the actual location where 
Elizabeth Short, the black guy who was murdered. Dr. George Hodel was brilliant. He specialized in venereal disease and had a clinic where he treated L.A. elites. He had powerful friends, which included the surrealist artist Man Ray. You'll want to remember that detail. Dad was a major figure in Los Angeles, head of L.A. County Health Department, a doctor, physician, um, married to a beautiful woman, Dorothy, my mother, who had been married to John Houston, the film director. So he was very, he was close friends with Houston from teenage on all the way into the 40s, up until he left in the 50s. Highly intelligent, super charismatic. He had that kind of presence where he'd walk, he'd walk into a room and it kind of like the Pope. Everybody would turn and he would take over and take control and uh, brilliant mind, extremely handsome. So he had everything going for him. And, uh, you know, I was basically kind of in as a child was in awe of him and, and loved him very much. On the outside looking in, the Hodel life seemed beyond glamorous. George would throw these lavish parties that were the talk of the town, and inside the garden oasis made the hard architectural curves appear soft, inviting. As a young boy with my two brothers, we'd watch kind of from the rooftop and stuff, and everybody laughing, these cocktail parties, everybody having fun. It was a magic time for me. Dad was the king, mom was the queen. We were the three little princes running around. But there was a lot going on beneath the surface. George's parties were fueled by booze and illicit drugs, where sexual orgies were par for the course. And the reality of life in the Soden house was far from perfect. He was old school, very strict disciplinarian. If we screwed up in minor ways, it was to the basement with a razor strap and spankings. But that was kind of like, now we're talking about mid-40s. So it was kind of like the way things were done. And Tamar, Steve's half-sister, would run away when she was 14. During the summer of 49, he's had, he had sex with his daughter, Tamar, who's now 14, and has come to live with us for the summer. She runs away. LAPD picks her up. They're going to return her home. And she, they said, why did you run away? And she says, because my life is so terrible. So what do you mean? And she discloses the sex and actually finds out since age 11, oral copulation with our father, all this. And so big headlines, newspapers, dad's arrested. Uh, he gets Jerry Geisler, who was like the attorney in those days. He was a Johnny Cochran of those days. Three-week trial, He does his ma- uh, Geisler does his magic, paints uh, Tamar with a pathological liar brush, teenager who's fantasizing, all this stuff. Never mind, there were three wit- adult witnesses present during the acts who testified. Later, we would find out there was a payoff. Anyway... He comes back, jury comes back, not in an OJ kind of verdict, 45 minutes, not guilty. George Hodel would be acquitted for the charges of incest against his daughter. And not long after, he would flee the country, spending the next 40 years in the Philippines. But in 1990, he would move back to California with his wife, June. The last decade of his life would become quite close, as close as he could be. You know, he wasn't capable of real close, but, you know, a good relationship. And then I get that 2 a.m. phone call in 1999 from June. Paramedics are here. Your father's had a heart attack. He's dead. Come down. And how old was he? He was 92. At my father's death, uh, I got called back to Los Angeles, which started me on this incredible investigation. By 1999, Steve was retired from the LAPD. And after his father's death, he was the executor of his estate. And as he was going through his father's things, he found two pictures of a dark-haired young woman, and he was stunned. The woman in the photos bore an incredible resemblance to Elizabeth Short. 
so much so that he began to dig not only into his father's life, but also mining his own memories, because he was remembering how family and friends had whispered about his father's involvement in the murder of the Black Dahlia, but also the murder of his own secretary, who he had allegedly overdosed in 1945, two years before Elizabeth Short had been found murdered. Through his investigation, Steve became convinced that not only had his father murdered these women, but also that he was responsible for the unsolved, brutal murders of women that took place in the 1940s. Remember all those unsolved murder cases that had gone cold under LAPD's watch? Steve believed that these murders had been committed in the basement of the Soden House, and in 2003, his book, titled The Black Dahlia Avenger, was published. Steve had uncovered that after the incest trial against his father, the DA's office had bugged George Hodel's home. According to Steve, documents that he'd obtained from the DA's office from 1950 indicated that his father did associate with Beth Short. They had investigated his father for the alleged murder of his secretary a year and a half before the Black Dahlia murder, but he'd never been charged. Steve Hodel believes that his father met Elizabeth Short at his venereal disease clinic in downtown L.A., and that he may have seen her outside the office as well. He found out that the Soden house had been electronically bugged between February 15th and March 27, 1950. That on February 18th, investigators were listening in to what sounded like a woman being assaulted in the basement at the Soden house, and then they heard sounds of digging. Later that night... George would have a conversation with a friend over the phone, and he said, quote, Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. He basically confesses to the Black Dahlia and the killing of his secretary on tape, six weeks of taping. Do you have any of those tapes? I have all the transcripts. Oh. And, yeah, uh, they were destroyed by LAPD. I mean, it was a whole cover-up. And basically, because of the corruption, and you got to understand, LAPD was a very different department back in the 40s. In the 30s and the 40s, it was a lot of, lot of uh, corruption, a lot of payoffs and stuff. So the grand jury in 49 took it away, the investigation away, the Black Dahlia away from LAPD, and they said, we want the DA's office to investigate. Something isn't right here. So the DA and the one white hat in the story is a Lieutenant Frank Jemison. And he starts at 18 detectives, 24-7. They bring George Hodell into the Hall of Justice to talk to him. And while he's there, they go break into the house, the Soden house, and they wire it, put microphones in the walls. And then he's released, and he has no clue that there are microphones. And they, 18 detectives, 24-7, for six weeks around the clock. But the, big, but the big story here, the big reason for the cover-up is, and I couldn't believe this, I'm reading the transcript, and on the third day of the stakeout, I'm reading it, and it says, George Hodel and this Baron, Baron go downstairs. Uh, there's a uh, blows are heard. A woman screams. More blows are heard. A woman screams again. And then it goes silent. And I'm sitting there, and I can't believe it. They're... They're at Hollywood Station in the basement listening to this. They're six minutes away. And I'm thinking, why aren't they out the door and doing a rescue? They do nothing. Anyway, I'm, and it, so it was either a major felony assault or I'm absolutely convinced it was a murder. Because also after that, he says on the tape, 
don't leave uh, any don't leave anything you know they were complicit basically because they didn't know what to do at the time and they did nothing and somebody died it cover that up right the two de detectives that are listening to this they don't know what to do do we do we call Jemison? maybe they tried to call him and he couldn't reach him well it's quiet now you know and he's into this kinky sex you know so they just let it go you might be wondering why George Hodel wasn't arrested immediately after detectives heard this audio, where he's essentially admitting to the murder of the Black Dahlia and his secretary, and they also hear what sounds like someone being murdered. Well, sure that there was midnight oil burned at City Hall, and they said, look, here, you know, uh, what do we do? He's, he's left, he's out of the country. Uh, we'll probably never find him. If we do, maybe he'll get Jerry Geisler and kick our butt again. He's in the wind. LAPD allegedly destroyed these tapes. They didn't want it to come out that their officers had listened to this and done nothing. But the DA's office didn't destroy their transcripts, but rather locked them away for 50 years. Steve Hodell believes that his father murdered and posed the Black Dahlia as an homage to the Surrealists, to his buddies, that this was his real work of art. Whereas Man Ray and the other Surrealists would have their red wine go home and talk, talk the talk. George walked the walk. He really believed there was no difference between the dream state and the waking state. And if you go there, there's nothing, you know. And he was a, you know, a misogynist of the highest order, a sadist of the highest order. You know, it's just incredible. This is a huge part of the story. The surrealism aspect and how he was like, saw this as art. And I just was thinking this real highbrow, no offense, asshole. And oh. it was just bringing all of this, this stuff up that he's like murdering this woman, displaying her body for this contingent of intellectuals. And it just was like, what? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's more, they were more than sexist. They were, you know, supreme misogynists. They hated women and they showed it in their artwork. Even after all these years, the case of the Black Dahlia is still considered unsolved. And there are so many conspiracy theories and suspects tangentially connected to Elizabeth Short. But at the end of the day, you have an extremely vulnerable young woman who could have been picked up by a total stranger. Do you know if she ever talked to her sister on the day that she disappeared? No, she never did. That was all fabrication. She just wanted to get rid of Red Manley. Her sister was safely ensconced up in Oakland. She's up in Oakland. Beth's in L.A. No, she didn't talk. She didn't talk to any I, of her family. I just think that, you know, now that I've listened to everything that you've said, that she was so vulnerable, Oh God, that, yes. especially that day. And it's absolutely positively possible that this and, and probably is probable because of the fact that she was so vulnerable that she just got in the car with an absolute stranger who just happened there to be. Go. And more than 75 years later, the case is still considered an open case with a detective assigned to the investigation. I'd say that at this point, it's where pretty much where it's been for all these years. It's unsolved. When you said stranger, I'm with you on that, unless or until I hear differently from a really reliable, credible source that has, you know, something to back it up. I believe that what happened was she went to the Crown Grill and she intended to stop off there, see if she knew anyone who was there, for instance, may have known somebody who was there, intending to get a ride to go back to Hollywood. 
And because she was headed in the right direction, I think what happened was, because we know she'd get in a car with a stranger. She did with Red Manley. He was a stranger, you know, at first. At she was point. hoping for that because that was her next, you know, that's how yeah. desperate she was. Yeah. So I think what happened was she was offered a ride and somewhere along the line, it went sideways. The Murder Chronicles is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We are produced by Brandon Morgan and myself, music by Soundstripe. For Pie in the Sky Media, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening.